anytime gender discrimination or racial discrimination happen, whether in the workplace or in life, it's an assault on the image of God. Of that. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Ken Keithley. And I'm Benjamin Quinn. So today we're going to talk with Chelsea Patterson Sobolik on women and work. And after that, we'll have another edition of our segment on my bookshelf. But first, it's time for our segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, such as news, sports, pop culture, or business from a Christian perspective. Last week, we at the Center for Faith and Culture hosted our third annual Exploring Personhood Conference. This year's theme was Challenges to Humanity. We had guests like uh, Liz Hall and George Yancey, Jacob Schatzer, John Wilsey, Fuzzrana, come and share about different challenges to humanity, how we can respond with the gospel. Uh, on our Christ and Culture blog, we have uh, kind of a summary and a recap from one of our attendees to that conference. Dr. Keithley, you were there. What was your favorite part of the conference? What's something that you took away from our Exploring Personhood conference? It's very difficult for me to pick a favorite part since so much of it was really just uh, very well done. I was thrilled with all of the presentations. As you said, this was the third year of a three-year project. The first year was very focused whenever uh, we discussed the question, what is uh, a person? Uh, what is a human being? The second year, we talked about, well, then how are human beings well-formed? We talked about human flourishing, spiritual formation. This year was the broadest in which we talked about challenges to humanity. And let's face it, that just covers the whole water. a lot of things. <laughs> it is a lot of things. But uh, it was remarkable how even though the the talks covered so many different subjects, they, they really did have some very common themes, which – I guess it shouldn't be too surprising because all of the speakers were coming, uh, uh, were addressing these questions from an evangelical perspective. So we had Fuzz Rana talk about the challenges of technology, uh, transhumanism. He explained it in ways that was were, that was just so very helpful. Uh, he also highlighted some of the the real challenges we're going to see in things such as um, brain implants and genetic engineering and. Uh, the, the really big ethical issues that we're going to face. Uh, you know, what is the difference between technologies or gene editing that alleviates the human uh, condition versus enhancing what it means to be a human? And I think he really did highlight that question. Then we had George Yancey who talked about approaching the race situation in the United States uh, from a a distinctly biblical perspective, and not uh, he, con he he contrasted colorblindness on one side, our anti-racism on the other side, and he presented a very interesting third option from the Bible, and I, I really appreciated that. Same thing with Liz Hall as she talked about the challenges of mental health and suffering today. John Wilsey uh, provided an excellent historical perspective. Uh, talking about uh, Christian nationalism. As I said, the talks covered a broad range of issues, yet there was a common core, and Jacob Schatzer, who is our 
uh, visiting scholar for the Bush Center this year, brought it all together really, really well. But if you're going to ask me what was my really favorite, if, if I'm if I'm and That's going, what I'm asking. Yeah. What was your really favorite thing? Well, Wednesday night when we had Molly Worthen give her testimony about how she came to faith. And, and Molly Worthen is a professor of history at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. She has uh, written a number of books and articles about uh, religion and about evangelicals in particular. As an outsider who she was an agnostic, uh, she considered herself an empiricist that didn't have room for the supernatural, and how she came to faith as a result of her interactions with J.D. Greer and Tim Keller and Francis Collins. It was really enlightening and inspiring. And a little convicting. Yeah, uh, the yeah. one thing that she said that really made me think was how she said that after being around evangelicals for 10 years and writing and researching uh, evangelicals and spending time with us as she interviewed us and talked with us, she said it wasn't until she talked to J.D. Greer that she had someone try to win her to the Lord. As she said, yeah. she said as she, you know, J.D. was talking to her, she said, oh, my goodness, I'm being evangelized. <laughs> uh, and she talks about how uh, J.D. and Tim Keller, uh, between the two of them especially, there were others. There was a scientist at UNC that was influential. And so there were a number of people who spoke into her life that, as she came to faith and followed the Lord in believer's baptism about 18 months ago. But it was convicting to me to think, okay, she's been around evangelicals 10 years, and finally somebody challenged her about the claims of the gospel on her life. So it was a wonderful conference, and I'm very pleased that we had the opportunity to present it. We did uh, record the different sessions of this conference. We hope to be publishing them on our website soon. If you want to be notified when those videos are up, you can go to the link in our show notes or cfc.scbts.edu, sign up for our email newsletter, and we will send the videos to you as soon as they're up, because you're not going to want to miss the various lectures Dr. Keithley is referring to uh, from this Exploring Personhood conference. But before we transition to our Christ and Culture conversation, one little reminder Go to your favorite podcast platform, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, somewhere else. Go ahead and give us that five-star five, raise. Five F- stars. Five stars. Don't do four. Don't do three. Do five. Five. Uh, we know there's a lot of you out there that listen, and a lot of you have not done this yet. So uh, we're going to keep saying it until you do it. Five stars, brief review. You have no idea how helpful that is to helping us spread the word about the Christ and Culture podcast. Now let's head to our Christ and Culture conversation. Southeastern understands that you have a strategic and valuable role to play in getting the gospel to your neighbors and the nations. That's why we offer over 40 degrees at the undergraduate, graduate, and doctoral levels to equip you to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Visit scbts.edu to learn more. What does it mean to have a gospel vision for women and work, the relationship between those two things, women and work? And here to discuss this question with us today is Chelsea Patterson Sobolik. Chelsea is the author of her new book called Called to Cultivate, a Gospel Vision for Women and Work. Let me say that again, Called to Cultivate, a Gospel Vision for Women and Work. Chelsea, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. 
really quick, just introduce yourself to our listening audience here. Just tell us who you are, where you're from, and the two or three most interesting things about you. Well, I'm Chelsea Soblick. I currently live um, right outside the Washington, D.C. area where I've been for 10 and a half years. And I always say God has a sense of humor because I never planned on coming to D.C., much less staying. But the Lord's really given me a heart um, for public policy. So I work in government relations for a large Christian humanitarian aid organization in the area. Um, met my husband here, grew up in North Carolina, um, was actually born overseas, but um, yeah, love what I get to do, um, love that I get to write on the side. But a couple interesting things. Um, mentioned I was born overseas. I think that's interesting. And then my husband and I just brought our son home through international adoption from India. So yeah, my family looks like the Absolutely. UN in some ways. I grew up with five <laughs> adopted siblings. Um, so it's, it's love fun. It. I love it. That's fantastic. And you have, as we talked about before we started recording, uh, there's a cat in the background, you're drinking coffee he and is. your tree is from <laughs> Ikea. So we're, we're getting, we're picking up vibes here. I should have mentioned. He's an actually well. a Hemingway cat. So he has um, thumbs. He's a blue oh, Russian, wow. which is. What? That's amazing. Um, So I should have mentioned in the introduction, also co-hosting with me today is our own Megan Dickerson, who works with us on the Center for Faith and Culture staff as our grant administrator, and very grateful to have Megan with us today. So let's jump in then a little bit about the book. So most of this book centers on stories of your own work life. Chelsea, tell us, if you will, just kind of give us a a bird's eye view of the book, why you wrote it, really what it's uh, hit the contours of that, and then we'll jump in from there. Yeah, I wrote this book um, because several years ago, I was actually working on Capitol Hill and walked through pretty difficult professional situation. I was working for a member of Congress I really respected at the time. And to make a very long story very short, he resigned in the middle of um, his term, in the middle of the Me Too movement. And when a member of Congress uh, leaves Congress, the staff lose their job. And so here I was, I was a year into marriage. My first book had actually just released and I lost my job Hmm. around Christmas time and because of something I didn't do and because of something um, wrong that happened. And um, I did what I have done so many times in my life and thought, okay, I'll just get a lot of books and and read what, Hmm. how to navigate um, being a Christian woman in the workplace. And at the time there were hardly any books on the bookshelves about Christian women and work. I will say there's a number of great books that have released actually this year. Um, And I'm so thankful that there are more women talking about this. But at the time, what I did was just buy every book I could find on work and calling and vocation. And there's so many good books out there. Um, Tim Keller is my favorite. His book, um, Every Good and Never is actually my favorite. Yes. But I really wanted to write the book I wish I'd had of not only laying a foundation for work, but also specifically talking to women who work, which um, is actually all women, um, whether that's inside the household or outside the household. But wrestling through some of the questions I've personally had, you know, obviously one of the large ones is navigating gender and racial discrimination in the workplace. But then some Um, of the smaller ones, like seasons of life, how to you know, maybe step in and out of the workforce well. And just just some of those questions that women uniquely think through when thinking about their work. So I I loved your book. Um, it was really encouraging. There's several things about it that were just really unique. And I've read several of those books uh, about women in work this year. And one of the things is 
um, that made your book a little bit different is that it didn't focus so much on motherhood. So what's the difference between a book about moms and work and a book about women and work? I think there's two things I would say here to kind of undergird that. Um, One of the foundational things that I want to get across in the book is that all humans, the majority of humans are called to work. Some Mm. of us work for a paycheck and some of us don't. Um, Obviously, moms are working every day in the home, but some of us are volunteering and caring for aging parents and all of that work matters deeply. Um, But the other thing I really wanted to get across, um, and this is probably tied into my first book on infertility, is God doesn't call every woman into the roles of wife and mother. And while those are good God designed roles. The reality is God doesn't call every woman into those roles. And so I, I wanted to touch on women who are working in the home or working out the, outside the home or some combination of the two. But I really wanted to kind of take a step back and say, whatever season women are in, whether that is a gal who's just about to graduate college thinking through what her professional life should look like, or maybe a stay-at-home mom who's considering stepping back into the workforce, or a single woman who maybe desires those things, but God hasn't, you know, given those. Um, You know, I make the point in the book that um, wife and mother are not a woman's highest calling. Mm -hmm. Um, The call of every woman and man is to, to glorify God and love our neighbor. And we can do that in so many different seasons. So I certainly do touch on moms in the home, working mothers, but really wanted to take take a step back and talk to kind of Christian women writ large who are working. And all seasons matter, but God doesn't call each woman into those seasons. And he doesn't call, I, I just finished the biography of Elizabeth Elliot, and she had three different husbands mm-hmm. in her, her lifetime. And so, you know, some of our seasons feel very fixed and they're they're not always. And so I really wanted to take a step back and say, all women who are working from the very beginning of history um, have had and have the ability to impact their families, their churches, their communities, and the world. It was really great. I think you did a really good job. One of my favorite parts of the book is about halfway in the middle where you talk about vocation and calling. I think that you had a really unique perspective. So often we hear about calling and think, oh, the one thing that I'm supposed to do with my life for the rest of my life. But that's not how you talk about it. So can you kind of talk about your view and how you came to understand it that way? You know, there's so many books dissecting calling and vocation, Mm -hmm. and there's some great ones. But I use this example, and this is not original to me, but assignments versus callings. And like I said, the calling of every Christian is to love God, love neighbor. And we can figure out how to do that wherever we are, whether we're living right outside Washington, D.C., or in Oklahoma, or, you know, around the world. We can figure out how to do that and how God calls us to do that. But what, so that never changes about us. Our assignments throughout life do change. Mm -hmm. Um, I mentioned at the top, we just brought our son home through adoption. And so one of my assignments has become mom. And I'm in my mid-30s. I became a mom some would say later in life, but my assignment has changed now. And so I think especially as women, our seasons of life can and often do change so often, whether that's stepping into a massive new role or just, you know, maybe our schedules fluctuate 
during the holidays differently than they do in the summer. I mean, smaller things like that, but our seasons of life are always changing. And so thinking through kind of having those large questions at the top of our mind of how can my work today love my neighbor and glorify God? I mean, it, it feels very small in some ways to say, just have these two questions at the top of your mind. But I know there's people listening who think, how on earth is my work making a difference for eternity today? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm serving coffee or mm -hmm. I'm typing an email that is going to go into, you know, the, the black Nobody's hole. Gonna <laughs> yes, nobody's going to read. Yes, nobody's going to I felt that way. I had a job that I absolutely despised and felt like my work did not matter at all. Um, and the thing I think that's ho so helpful about those two questions is the gospel changes everything, but scripture reorients our perspective. And I use this example in the book, but it's appropriate living in DC area, the concept of ambassadorship, everything that we do as Christians, um, from the big things to the, the tiny things tells the world something about who God is and what he is like. And we know that work predates the fall. And so when we're working with excellence and we're we're stocking the shelves of Walmart with excellence and, and loving our coworkers and seeking to do everything well, it's telling the world something about who God is. And if we're on time and we don't, you know, fudge an expense report or we conduct ourselves with, with character, it matters. And the thing I love about scripture and the end of our story is we know that what we do today not only matters for today you, we might be feeding a hungry person or, or whatnot it also matters for eternity and so we have that that almost double win of God has invited us into the redemption story today but he's also what we're doing here on earth in in small ways or practicing for eternity um, and, and our work matters for eternity. So it's it's this beautiful thing of we can love our neighbor today and we can glorify God and it's going to matter for today and it's going to matter for eternity. I feel like that brings so much freedom that no matter what my job is today, if I get a paycheck or if I've taken a step back from my career, it doesn't mean that I've forsaken a calling that God has put on my life because my calling is is to love God and my neighbor and to serve God and my neighbor, that it is just an incredibly freeing to me to have that perspective of assignments rather than this static calling. Mm -hmm. I totally yeah, agree. Me too. <laughs> it, it seems to me that to your point, um, even the mundane kind of tasks that we may get paid to do, you mentioned stocking the shelves at Walmart or an expense report, the degree to which we manifest um, not only character, but the, the degree to which we manifest God love and neighbor love in those activities and in those relationships is the degree to which these things actually have eternal purpose and enduring some kind of enduring meaning, even beyond just uh, uh, just the shift that we worked on Tuesday or whatever the case is. I want to return to the question about uniqueness, something that Megan raised earlier. And I really want you to help me as a pastor uh, a male, a man who preaches on a regular basis, but doesn't pretend to understand the uniquenesses of women in the workplace. Can you can you speak to that just a little bit? What is some of the uniquenesses of the experience of women in the workplace that you would really love for everyone, especially men and especially pastors to just be more aware of? Oh my goodness, there's so many things I could say here. I think number one, I would say women's work in the workplace matters just as much as men. And I think I think this 
is changing, but there's been a temptation in some circles to view the work of women as a little bit more menial, like women are assistants or women only do children's ministry or kind of putting women, and I'm specifically speaking in Christian spaces, but putting women, the work of women in these specific boxes. And, you know, while women are very gifted in those areas, women are also very gifted in, you know, leadership areas and um, these different areas that women in more Christian spaces haven't traditionally been invited to step into is the best way to put it. And so viewing the work of women as just as meaningful um, as the work of men, um, obviously we all know that God created men and women with equal dignity, worth and value. And obviously they have distinct roles, but um, one of the things that really struck me when I was diving deeper into what scripture not only says about work, but women and work is the creation mandate was not just given to Adam. It was given to Adam and to Eve. Mm-hmm. And so truly from the very first woman, women have and are continuing to have huge um, playing vital roles in the flourishing of their their communities and their churches. And so, I mean, it sounds very simple in some ways, but really viewing the work of women, whether it's in a church setting, Christian ministry setting, or maybe Christian brothers um, serving in more secular workplaces, but interacting with with um, women, just viewing their work as deeply meaningful um, and not sequestering them off to these are kind of women's work in these, these spaces, if that makes sense. And then I think the second really big thing is women give so much more thought to their seasons of work. So what I mean by that is if a man, you know, gets married, um, has a child, it's expected that he's going to go back to work. And for women, um, and this might be a hot topic to some, but, you know, that's not expected. Some women financially need to go back to work. Some want to go back to work. Some don't want to go back. Yeah, There's so many different ways that that can play out. And I think that's one of the things, you know, I don't answer in the book, should a woman stay home and raise her children or go back into the workplace full time? I don't answer that because number one, um, I think that's where wisdom comes into play. I don't know someone's family situation or financial. I mean, there's so many factors that go into that. And that's where you as a pastor, I think, can help counsel families to think through all these different things. And one of the things that I would say here is work has shifted so much in the past 200, 300 years because of the industrial revolution. I mean, 400 years ago, and even, I mean, even much more recently, you know, families would work together. They would have a bakery and live upstairs or they would all work on the farm. And so women weren't thinking through, am I going to spend eight hours away from my family. It was much more familial, if that makes sense. So work has really shifted a lot over the past couple hundred years. And each family has to make that decision. So women, I think, are really thinking through all those different things quite a lot. And a lot of women I know choose to stay home for the first couple years to be with their babies and maybe work during that time or get up early and work a couple hours. So I I think we need to have a lot of freedom in that area, especially because, I mean, the economy's hard right now. Finances, I mean, everyone's finances Mm -hmm. are probably crunched right now. And so to say, this is the only godly thing to do, I think that's not scriptural because 
you know, holding up kind of the Proverbs 31. She worked very hard. She obviously cared yeah. for family, but she cared for the poor and the needy and considered her, she was very active, um, not only for her family, but in her community. And so I think one of the things I would say is a, to pastors is I think it's an area where there should be a lot of freedom, obviously a lot of wisdom and prayer, but I think there should be a lot of freedom because everyone's situation is different. And to say X, Y, Z is the only right way to do something. Mm -hmm. I, think, yeah. I, I don't think that's giving Christians enough freedom in that area. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the, the Proverbs 31, the, the virtuous woman there who I, I think, by the way, maybe this is news to some of the listeners. I don't think that's just about women. I think she is the model human being, not just the model female and, and that she is remarkable, not only in how she cares for her family, but she's very business minded. She's entrepreneurial. She's uh, socially minded, as you mentioned, all of those things, as we all should be. And I think it's also instructive for us that it's a woman that's held up as that that sort of model human being, as the picture of, of wisdom incarnate. Um, I want to ask you about this a little bit off script, and then Megan, I'll hand back to you for the next question. But you you mentioned a couple of times, Chelsea, about the difficulty of the economy right now. And I'm I'm old enough to remember the difficulty of the economy in the 80s. So I was born in the early 80s. I remember my parents talking about um, the first house they bought was 14% interest rates. And I don't remember oh. a single person uh, through elementary school, at least, I don't remember a single kid that I went to school with whose mom or dad stayed home. I mean, both parents worked. And as I reflect on that, they worked because they had to work. There just wasn't a lot of options. And then I suppose things eased up a little bit. Perhaps we got a little bit comfortable in uh, economic conditions where it was easier to have just a one household income or maybe a, um, a one parent that had a couple of jobs or something like that. But now, increasingly, I find myself, whether my students at Southeastern or as a pastor, talking to younger families who are who are it seems as though they're trying so hard for one person to stay home and they're really having a tough time making the ends meet. And it's as though they just need permission for somebody to give them permission to say, you know what, both of you might have to work. It's it's not a it's not a sin. It's not the end of the world. And in fact, a generation ago, that was kind of the way it was for everybody. How do you respond to that? Do you see it the same way, or is there, is there better insight here? I think there's a a couple of things. Again, each family situation is so different. I mean, I shop at Aldi. Like, there are ways to definitely. Re significantly reduce budgets if you're really trying and that's a huge priority for your family you know you might not ever go out to eat and that's okay i mean there's ways to reduce a budget if that's a huge priority i think the other thing that's so cool about today's economy and it's again it's a hard one to live in that is different than 20 30 years ago is people can do uber on the side or instacart delivery yeah. or yeah. um i was reading the other day um people who transcribe stuff online. I mean, you can make good money doing so many different types of things. So, I mean, yes, I think some families are, you know, faced with both parents needing to work, but I would say there's a lot of ways to be creative. Maybe, you know, someone goes and drives Uber for a couple nights a week um, mm -hmm. after bedtime. And, and there's, there's just so many ways to kind of couple something together and make it work. Yeah. And so I'd say use some creativity if, you know, a single income is, um, or a stay-at-home parent is the ideal for your family. And then the other thing that I think, you know, I grew up and my dad owned his own architecture firm, and this is a long story made short, but we went through some very, very, very lean years. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching my parents sacrifice so much for, I'm one of six kids, sacrifice so much for us. 
And it taught me so many lessons. It number one taught me how to be content with little. I mean, because we didn't have the means to go just buy what we wanted when we wanted it. But I also watched my parents, both my parents. Um, my mom is an ESL teacher and has done that for years and years. I got to see both of them working hard, not only for the sake of working hard, but also because they cared for us. And I think, again, everyone's situation is so different, but that to me has stood out. I mean, it shaped who I am to see both of my parents being willing to say, my family is the most important thing and we are going to do whatever it takes to make sure they're fed and clothed and housed and all of these things. And so that's a long answer to a short question, but I think there's, there can be a lot. No, and of it's, a, it's a complicated question. Yeah. Um, yeah, I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate your insight on that because you're exactly right. It is, there's so many opportunities now for, for side, side income or moonlighting or discretionary, you know, call it what you want. That just wasn't the case for a generation or so ago. And yet, and also some of the things that I, I see some younger couples, younger families struggling with is they don't know when to turn that off. They, they feel like every waking moment needs to be a working moment and a money-making moment so they can make those ends meet. And that's, that that becomes part of the conversation we have to have about self-control and technology and those kind of things. But maybe that's maybe that's another podcast. I appreciate your focus on Christian freedom, that there's not a one right thing for anybody. I know I stayed home for a lot of years or worked and worked from home in various ways or whatever we needed for our family. And that there's just freedom in that. And because like what you were saying earlier, we have different assignments in different seasons and there's not one vocational calling. If I stay at home now, it doesn't mean that I'm going to be a stay at home mom forever. Forever. Yeah. Kids are going to grow up. Or if I have a career now, it doesn't mean that I can never take a step back um, to focus on something else. Um, but one thing that I do want you to to talk about just a little bit um, as we're talking about the differences between men and women in the workplace that women have to face uh, situations of sexism more than men do. So if you have a whole chapter about sexism and racism. Why did you think that was so important to include? What what do, especially our listeners who are men, women are going to be more familiar. What do our listeners who are men need to know? I wanted to include this and it's, this was the hardest chapter to write, not only because I shared a little bit of my own story, but because so many women I know have experienced gender or racial discrimination or both in the workplace. And I include other people's voices in this chapter because I personally haven't experienced racism, but I know women who have in the workplace. So I think it's really important for Christians to talk about this because it does happen to Christian women. Sadly, it has happened in Christian workplaces. It also happens to Christian women who are not working in Christian workplaces. So I think it's very important to address because it happens. And I can't tell you how many conversations I've sat down over coffee with a girlfriend and they have, you know, again, my story is a little bit more dramatic in the sense of my boss resigned in the middle of the Me Too movement, but so many women who have been excluded from conversations with all their male coworkers because they didn't watch a football game. I mean, things like that sound so simple, but when it's a rhythm, um, you know, women can feel like they can't be as included as men. Uh, there's just so many different ways that this can play out. And I wanted to address it because anytime gender discrimination or racial discrimination happen, whether in the workplace or in life, it's an assault on the image of God of that person. 
And it's, it's wrong. It is absolutely wrong. And so Christians ought to be and should be on the forefront of holding up the dignity and value of every single human being. And I know we talk about this a lot, but it really does come into play in the workplace where we might see someone being treated differently because of the color of their skin or because of their gender. Um, And I think we should be the first ones to be saying, hey, that's wrong. That is not how God views women or views humanity, but we should be calling that out when appropriate. And then also um, in every circle that we can, whether from the pulpit, from our prayer in our small group, um, just reminding one another of our, our innate dignity and value. And I think so many problems um, in the world could be um, greatly diminished if we viewed one another the way that God views us, which is created in his image with value. And I mean, I could go down, I could talk all day about this um, topic, but it really does start with Christians because we, we know, we know better. We ought to know better. And so I think it's really important for Christians to acknowledge that it happens again, sadly, unfortunately in Christian environments, but then certainly in non-Christian environments as well. Well, close us out. The subtitle of your book is a gospel vision for women in work. Why do we need a gospel vision for work? The gospel changes everything. Um, One of the beautiful things about the story of scripture is God is redeeming all things to himself, including our work. And praise God, praise God, right? Because we, I will be the first to raise my hand and say, I feel the impacts of the fall with my work every single day. And I think all of us do. Um, But the beauty of the gospel is it changes not only um, our mindset and our vision, but it changes how and why we work. We're not solely working for success anymore. Um, We're working for a bigger story. Um, Our story is a bigger one. And we have the end of our story um, in view as we're working that one day God is going to right all wrongs and redeem all things and wipe away all tears and So the gospel really does free us up from only working for ourselves, only working, you know, for a paycheck, only ever working and never resting. Um, Rest is a huge part of of how God designed the world. Um, It changes everything. And it's something we need to remind ourselves of all the time, all the time, because maybe you're like me, I get up and spend time in scripture. And then by noon, I need that reminder again. And I mean, probably much, much quicker, but we need to have reminders in our lives of how the gospel really does change every single part of our lives um, from the words we say, from the texts we send, from how we work and it just everything. It changes everything. And it's such a beautiful thing because it means that even if we feel like no one sees our work or no one sees the 12th diaper we changed or the, 10th expense report we did this month or whatever that is where we just feel like we're banging our head against the wall the gospel tells us that we're never forsaken that christ is with us all the time and so he sees and he knows us in every situation including the situations and seasons where we feel discriminated against discouraged frustrated all of the ways that sin impacts our work he's present in those moments Love it. Chelsea, that's fantastic. Let me recite the book again. It's Called to Cultivate by Chelsea Patterson Sobolik. Called to Cultivate a Gospel Vision 
for women and work. Chelsea, thank you so much for joining us today. Megan, thanks for your help with co-hosting. And Chelsea, can't wait for future books. I'm, I trust that uh, already you're you're quite the writer. I trust that you have a few more that you're planning to work on. So we look forward to further, further conversations for the podcast with you. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Now it's time for our listener favorite segment entitled On My Bookshelf, in which our guests tell us what they're reading right now or maybe what a favorite book is. We've just finished an interview with Chelsea Patterson Sobolik about a new book that she's written about women and work, but she also hung around a little bit longer to tell us about one of her favorite books. So Chelsea, what's on your bookshelf? I am going to recommend something that just came in the mail. Um, It's called um, Every Moment Holy. If you guys have followed the Rabbit Room Press, I love so much of what they do, but it's a book of liturgies and their third volume is called The Work of the People. And there are liturgies for um, so many of the things that we spend our daily tasks on. I actually just wrote one and put it above my sink for washing dishes and there's one for laundry and there's one for before you begin writing. And so I love that book. It The first two editions are are wonderful as well, but I really love the third volume, um, The Work of the People. Um, And I think you can get some of their liturgies online, but the book is beautiful and I keep it open on our coffee table and just kind of turn through. Yes, yes. These are, uh, they're not paper copy. They're not hard copy. They're leather bound. They're beautiful. It looks like a a devotional. Tell us, let me ask you just a couple questions, Chelsea, for clarification. So when you use the language of liturgy, uh, some of our listeners will hear that and think, oh, I grew up in a a liberal church where all they did was high liturgy and I didn't understand it and it seemed empty and cold and stale. But there's been this renewal, this movement, even among more conservative evangelicals towards liturgical type movement and language and worship. Tell us what we mean by that. Why would we need a liturgy for the dishes? So when I say liturgy, it is a pre-written prayer. Um, So words that have been written already that I can enter into you know, maybe 30 seconds while I'm washing the dishes and just pray over that. Um, And I love it because it gives me words when I might not necessarily have words. And it is a moment to stop during the day and to very quickly reorient um, my heart and my mind towards either the task I'm doing or the way I want to move through my day. Um, But it's a pre-written prayer. And I, I, I think both prayers are important, whether it's, you know, praying our own words to God or using the prayers of the people throughout history. There's so many prayers that have been written um, that that I think we can rely on and we can take those words and use them and pray them to God. And it's honestly one of the ways that I think I practice praying without ceasing through my days, whether that's me praying my own words to God or using prayers, liturgies that have been written for people to use and to pray to God. I love it. It's beautiful. Megan, I'm curious, have you used this book as well? And you and I have talked about some of this before, but um, your thoughts on every moment, holy daily liturgies through ordinary tasks, those kind of things. I haven't, I haven't seen volume three, but we have volume one and it's been really sweet. And I think, I think there's a, a liturgy for changing diapers in volume one. That was just really yes, sweet. It came out when we were in diaper stage and I was like, <laughs> oh yes, you understand. I think <laughs> there's even two. And the second one for there are many changing, there many are the changings of diapers or something. Yeah, for the, many, for the many changings of diapers or something. Yeah. yeah. 
And that's so true. I mean, that, that, you're exactly right. You, you feel like someone has paid attention to, if ever there was a moment that we we could probably use prayer, it's in the many yeah. changing of diapers. There's one as well. Um, just this, uh, not long ago, a student of mine graduated who had written on a theology of sport and his wife had given him the first volume. And in that first volume, there's a prayer for the competitor, for the athlete, just just a thoughtful way to approach the activity of, of competition. Chelsea, I love it. Uh, thank you for sharing with us and look forward to having you on again soon. Thank you. Well, thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed it, give us a five-star rating and a brief review on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next week.